Welcome to WVU Marketing Horizons, hosted by Ruth Stevens and Cindy Greenhouse. We are grateful to WVU, who offers renowned online master's degree programs in marketing communications, and this series is presented by the Reed College of Media as part of their ongoing marketing series. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Ruth. I wanted to share with you that I had the most interesting conversation with Heather Blank recently. Heather is, you know, of us uh, digital and data peeps. You will relate to her. She has a background at responses and then at data logics and Oracle, and she's currently at uh, Revenue Vision Partners. And um, we were talking about what is going on these days with the changing landscape of data, data availability, and what is walled gardens, and are we going to be allowed to do the things that we like to do for our marketing and advertising. And she has a really interesting point of view, and I thought we should invite her on so that we can ask Heather to join us in sharing uh, what's happening in the world of Wall Gardens and if that's the future. That Heather. sounds so interesting. This is all about display advertising, digital advertising, right? Yes. Let's get her in here. All right. Well, Heather, hi. Hi, everyone. Nice to, nice to speak with everyone. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Heather. May I ask the first question, Heather, about let's define a walled garden. What what even is that in marketing parlance? Could you explain? So I think, you know, everybody thinks about it differently, a little bit nuanced here and there. But in general, in the digital space, wall garden means a platform or a website or an app where access to those users is guarded. Probably the best example is Facebook. And so really that's around, hey, users are quarantined and segregated into the Facebook app and the Facebook website. And advertisers must work directly with Facebook and Facebook tech to target those users. And then the measurement has to happen within the platform of Facebook as well. And the data about those users and their interactions on the Facebook app or the Facebook website are not accessible over the entire internet. And they're gated for advertisers to access in particular ways. And that's really what a walled garden means. Oh, I see. So it's Facebook keeping the audience to themselves and only allowing access through their vehicles, meaning probably being able to charge more and control more as a result. Yes, and be a little bit more opaque too, right? So you don't know exactly what you know users are doing there. Uh, advertisers have uh, not as much transparency around the success of their advertising there and whatnot. And Facebook isn't the only one. Uh, it's definitely the most prevalent one. You know, when the internet first started and consumers started dialing in, AOL was a walled garden, you know, and we all dialed into our modems and heard that you've got mail. And that was, you know, probably one of the early instances of walled gardens as well. And who are some of the others then today, other than Facebook? Yeah, you have other walled gardens, such as, you know, you have different apps, for instance, that are walled gardens. Oh, right. Um, so, and, 
And then, you know, I think what's coming up now is very prevalent wall gardens also is a lot of the streaming TV and uh, streaming solutions like a Netflix or a Hulu. Um, and to some extent, honestly, Amazon is a walled garden as well. So what we've seen is some of these giant firms have portrayed this as a way to protect their users and to provide privacy for their users, right? Like Facebook or on the B2B side, LinkedIn, and they're saying that they're doing this to protect our, our personal information and our privacy. But it sounds like what it might actually be is that they're protecting it because this is a, a good monetary and business play for them and that we are going to have less access to consumer behavior information, uh, less ability to optimize data if they're going to grasp it and hold it and the browsing behavior behind their walls. Is, is that what you think might happen, Heather? It's certainly a risk. I think that, um, and Facebook, you know, although they're probably the most, you know, frustrating wall garden with marketers as far as their lack of transparency, they've also done a lot of good things around the privacy component too. So, Cindy, to your question, they kind of are both. Like, they've, they are doing, it's not, they're doing more to make things more transparent for the user. So for anybody, you know, who's just a consumer on Facebook, I don't know if most people know this, but if you see an ad on Facebook as just a regular user, and you click on the three dots in the right hand corner of that ad, you actually can see why you received that ad. You can see what data was used to target, what the targeting methodology was, and you can opt out of that as well. And so in that sense, you know, the wall garden and the control that Facebook has put in the user's hands is really good. And that's a plus. But the flip side of that coin is you're right. They are locking down their users, their data, and the eyeballs that they can offer up to a marketer. That makes it very hard for marketers then to have omni-channel and holistic views of their marketing performance. Uh, You run a campaign in Facebook and you are targeting, you know, Heather Blank, you don't get to also then use Facebook data and and measure how Heather Blank responded to your ads that they might have seen in other areas, either other wall gardens or the open web. And so there's a lack of, you know, transparency and cross-platform targeting and measurement capabilities in wall gardens. Is that because the other interactions we're having with the Heather Blank in this example need to be matched up with our other marketing investments and sometimes we can't match them properly? Is is that the problem? You're right. It, Facebook ID doesn't match to any other standard ID on the internet. And Facebook doesn't open up their data to enable marketers to do that for the most part. And so it's really hard to, you know, all of us as marketers, we're constantly trying to be consistent in our messaging to the users, holistic across channels, give her the right message at the right time. Like we all know this, right? It's harder to do that when you're trying to put a wall garden as part of your media mix. And then it's also hard to evaluate the performance of those campaigns in context of other areas that you might be serving ads. So why why do you think Facebook or and other walled gardens are not opening up? Meaning, isn't there enough 
pressure from the advertisers to do so when that's probably the single largest source of their revenue? So a good, great point in the sense that money talks, right? And so in my experience, and when I've worked with large brands at you know, Media Math and Responses, those really big brands with major marketing dollars are incentivizing and requiring Facebooks and wall gardens of the world to open up their IDs for matching and targeting outside of their application. Unfortunately, money talks in those situations. So the average marketers with the average budgets don't have that same kind of clout. And the Facebooks of the world, you know, they don't want to really open that up because then they run the risk of kind of becoming the Googles of the world, which are very open on the internet. But the Google, because those like a property like Google has so many users, marketers are kind of like Google's kind of powering the internet with all their IDs, right? And so they're helping everybody get better at matching. And I think the Facebooks and the Roku's and the Netflix of the world, they don't want to get into that situation where their efforts fuel everybody else. They want to keep their efforts, their valuation, their benefits more to themselves to retain some of that revenue on their own. Yeah. So, you know, you were talking about follow the money. So we know like where the money and the control is, is where the power is, right? So on one side, we have protect privacy, have relevance and meaning. And the other side we have, if we control it behind some sort of paywall or wall garden, then we control that, which means we keep our competitors out. So if, you know, we also have at the same time, Apple and the whole movement towards the death of cookies and third party uh, data. And so is this a natural evolution that this is the way it's meant to go and we have to accept that this is the future of where it's going? Or are we seeing Facebook, LinkedIn and some of the um, platforms taking advantage of the death of cookies and the movement away from third parties to a power grab? And moving them into more proprietary wall gardens. Definitely. Like if I, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, 25 Mm -hmm. plus years. And I think, you know, we spent and me, you know, collectively us as all marketers spent, I feel like the first 10 to 15 of those years, finally getting to a point where we could have the tech and the capabilities um, out in market to really have an orchestrated and personalized conversation across all devices with users, right? And that was largely powered by a standardized third-party cookie. I mean, that's what enabled us to do that. And everybody aggregating around that, matching that. And over time, you know, at least for a lot of the big marketers, the wall gardens were opening up in some of those instances. So we were moving in the right direction. Now, I think with, you know, the deprecation of the third-party cookie, at least on Google's, and remember, Google isn't the only one doing this, like Safari and Apple already do this. And so Google's just had the largest impact. That's why everybody talks about it. But I think what that, the concerns I have about that move is without an stamp, another strong alternative of a standardized identity on the internet, we run the risk of going backward to almost every single publisher out there becoming a little mini wall garden. 
And obviously then the larger publishers of the world are going to have much more benefit than the smaller. So it's going to make for a very fragmented consumer experience if we can't figure this out, meaning I might get that same ad on every single website because there's no universal ID to like gauge my frequency, for instance. But also it's going to make for a really difficult way for like smaller publishers to compete in the ad markets for those dollars as well. So how does that happen? Is there a governing board or an industry association or somebody? There are a lot of people trying to solve this problem. So all of the above, Ruth, yes. I don't think, you know, it's not like a government or a federal or a state issue at all. So there's no really government, I think, that's stepping in to help here. But there are multiple different marketing agencies, privacy advocacy groups, all of that working. And I think, you know, when I was at Media Math, we were part of various different coalitions who were trying to solve it. There's companies like LiveRamp and the Trade Desk um, stepping up to develop tech that can be more open source for folks. And so I think, you know, there's there is billions of dollars at stake here and the industry is not going to let that fall flat. So people are going to solve this and folks that are, you know, spending every day thinking about this are, are going to come up with, I think, good solutions. But I think as marketers and as consumers, we need to continue to work with the partners that we have and the, our own wallets, whether it be our personal wallets or our marketing budgets, to continue to um, demand transparency privacy, and sort of interoperability across the internet so that folks, you know, that we don't go backwards and, you know, give up all this hard work we've done over the last 15 plus years. Yeah, you know, we've worked so hard to get better transparency and tracking and measurability and to be more relevant to the individual, right at the individual level, right? And the pandemic made this more important than others times where we were wanting to make sure that our communication with brands and around our marketing was very, very relevant and very personalized. So if we start walling off content and we as brands and marketers do not know where our consumers are spending their time, right? Because they we may not have visibility across the whole communication spectrum. What happens to that? We're not getting that bi-directional data feed. We're not orchestrating a communication strategy that lets us know where our consumers are if they venture into or spend time in these uh, more walled gardens. Is this going to hurt from a 360 conversational view with our customer? Yes, for sure. Um, I think that, you know, there's two things at play going on right now in the industry that are, I think, putting, limiting the ability for marketers to do what they want to do as far as personalized and relevant messaging. One of them is, you know, wall gardens continue to pop up. And even as you said, like, Cindy, the, the consumers are shifting more to digital right now too, right? So think about like, all, I don't know if you personally have experienced this, but like we watch a lot more streaming television now than we did mm-hmm. before. We're not going mm-hmm. out as much or we're not going to the movies and we do that. So you have a lot of consumers just migrating to these um, areas that are naturally sort of walled gardens that we weren't even thinking about yet. And those are where the eyeballs are now. So that's where the marketing dollars have to flow, right? 
And so you have this migration of the consumer to traditional wall gardens versus other areas that were more open and unlocked, so to speak, uh, in the digital space. And then you also have, you know, the other part of this is besides just a third party cookie, there is a real play on um, how to, you know, giving the ability to the consumer to determine who collects data and how much data you share. And that's a good thing. Uh, in general, of course, we should have consumers that have their own control. But without the consumer being educated on what that data provides and the benefits the consumer gets from sharing that, if you just think about your own personal experience, you get the you know the pop up on your phone now that says, "Hey, this app wants to share data with people." And the sort of visceral reaction to that is, "I'm not sharing my data. No way. No." Um, but what that's going to cause then is. Um, marketers will have less access to broad scale data from consumer behavior across multiple touch points, which then results in consumers being stuck with having to like watch a bunch of things and see a bunch of ads that's not relevant to them, right? If you think about like going back to the old days of like that AOL email and all of the irrelevant email, spam email you had in your inboxes back then and how far we've come, right, as an, as an industry to getting more relevant for the consumers, I, I worry about that being a risk, right? So everybody stopped sharing data. Now marketers don't know anything about users and they still have to spend their marketing dollars. So the people with the biggest budgets will just be telling the loudest story and it will be a lot of irrelevant ads on our computer screens, on our phone screens and in our streaming TVs. So I think, you know, moving the industry, moving to do some education around why you should share data and how data can be safe and how it benefits the consumer is a really good plus. And I've seen some companies stepping up and doing that, you know, uh, in general. So I think that's good. So it sounds like you're you've got a, a half positive and half negative prediction of oh. the future going I'm, here. I'm always like, okay, the half the the glass is half full, but what could we put in there? So yes. So the the positive is that with a a standardized ID, marketers and consumers will have an easier time transacting back and forth with each other. But as consumers are offered more privacy options and don't take us up on those, we will have less data and they will have a poorer experience. Agree. Agree. What does a what is a standardized, what does that look like? So we had under third-party cookies, there was a standard ID, right? Like that was part of what third-party cookies gave us was a more standardized view of the consumer. So that goes away. How would you create a standard ID across devices, across media? What would be required to get us back to something that would allow us to have that view I won't be able to explain the technical way it happens, but the the sort of layman's way I describe it is this happens on our mobile devices already. So with mobile devices, we use the standard ID that's passed through with every phone. It's got a different name based off the operating um, system that you have, but it's basically IDFMA or, or different um, IDs 
uh, it's just a standardized ID. It's like a number that your phone has. And in the mobile advertising space, the industry, that's like a consistent ID that, and a persistent ID that travels with the user. And so if you think about that being developed in the open web and on the display side, it would be the way to sort of just in, in general terms handle it. Now, obviously, there's a lot of technical complexity around that because now all the systems along the whole supply chain of like programmatic and display advertising have to be able to read and transact on that new thing. And so that's a lot of what the work is going to be. We all know we follow the money and commerce and business and innovation generally follows where there's um, opportunity to really grow either an an existing revenue stream or or find new um, revenue opportunities. So where do you think this could go, Heather? Where's the upside if you were an innovative forward thinker, seeing the landscape of where we are today and saying, okay, I see this is where we're at, but I'm an entrepreneur. I want to go and and, and plant my flag uh, to where it's going to go. Where would you want to spend your time? One is definitely like figuring out this, how do we get a standardized ID across the open web? And how does that integrate? And how do you make that easy enough for the whole supply chain to transact on. That's one. I also think, and you know, I'm I'm talking on two sides of the same coin, but the other, the other, you know, part of this whole conundrum that's that we're coming up on with deprecation of the of the cookie as we know it today is this consumer side too, right? And so the other thing I think that brands are really struggling with and are looking for solutions on is things around consent management. Um, you know, regulatory uh, guidelines through, you know, California CCPA or UPN's GDPR, they're putting a lot of onus on the brands themselves and the publishers to manage consent from users. And so I think that's another big area where I'd love to see people in the industry step up is tools that enable universal consent management. And, you know, like I said earlier, Facebook is doing some things right. And wouldn't it be great if like the internet could just have that little thing that you clicked uh, no matter where you were and you could see why you're getting targeted, who's targeting you, who's paying for the ad and control that data and then see like what you would have received if you hadn't shared data, right? Like, oh, you're going to get this other ad about something that's totally irrelevant. And then that starts to help educate the consumers on why sharing data is good. And will get us back to a place where I think data is at a scale point where marketers can start to use it again. From your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> yes. And I unfortunately am like contributing nothing to that. But can somebody hear us talking and do that for all of us? <laughs> it's so true. Like if we could say, if you hadn't given this information, think about what your world would look like as a consumer. Like you think this is a problem. What would it have looked like if you hadn't? have given us information to make this targeted and relevant. Yeah, wouldn't that be a before and after? Well, Heather, thank you for joining us on this really important discussion. 
and on this topic that's um, relevant today, but is certainly going to be relevant for tomorrow and how uh, we all deal with this and look forward. Uh, I think we're going to see some real developments um, in the future as a result of this and uh, reactions to this, both from the consumer side and brands on how they react to wall gardens. So, um, Ruth, what do you say we um, say thank you to Heather for chatting with us today? And you and I can continue this conversation and have some discussion around what we think this all means for us. Good idea. Thank you, Heather, for having me. I really appreciated it. Thanks, Heather. Cindy, wasn't Heather interesting? I feel like I got a quick education on this whole matter of digital advertising that I've never really understood quite as well before. And thank you for finding her. (laughs) And and as a a longtime um, multi-channel marketer myself, I was fascinated by the walled garden problem she raised that is about making it very difficult for us to compare our spend inside walled gardens against certain target audiences to those investments outside of the walled garden. And I can imagine marketers just tearing their hair out saying, well, how can I understand the lifetime value of any particular customer? How can I understand their full behavior in relationship to me when part of it is walled off from me. And it was really, really helpful to understand that. You know, we have worked so hard to figure out uh, multi-channel attribution and understanding that consumers don't live in a world where they just consume one media or exposed to one particular channel. And, you know, we've embraced this omni-channel idea for so long. And this concept that the key problem here may be that we're going to move away from that means potentially, Ruth, that those of us that own uh, P&Ls and own only certain media P&Ls are going to go back to the days where we're fighting for, well, wait a minute, I can do attribution for my channel. You can't do for your channel. And we're going to start moving away from what we had thought was like the whole omni-channel nirvana of the consumer conversation. Right. I'm reminded of Don Schultz and integrated marketing. (laughs) sort of taking a step backwards. Yeah. I I didn't expect that. Like, I really didn't. I thought we have moved so far down the road of, and, you know, we have silos, of course, with technology and silos with, you know, the P&Ls. But this could reinforce those silos within marketing departments based on um, who we have access to and who we don't, right? But I loved the part when she was talking about consumer control of digital ads that I think many consumers don't even understand that if they click on the three dots in the upper right-hand corner, they can not only see why they were targeted, but also take some action about preferences for the future. Isn't that interesting? 
Absolutely. And you know, with all the streaming networks that we're seeing and all the fragmentation in streaming, you have Peacock. You know, we used to have like the three networks. Then we went to basically <laughs> the three streaming networks, right? You had, you know, Netflix, you had Amazon Prime and, you know, pick your third. And now that we have all the fragmentation in the network streaming, the interesting thing about how we're not even going to be able to look at as a consumer to say, wait a minute, if I just want to consume content, now I have to figure out whether I want to give it to CBS or I want to give it to Netflix or I want to give it to Amazon. It becomes more and more fragmented for us as a consumer, which is not very user-friendly either. Yeah. Um, I, as a consumer myself, am wondering how these pay for subscription-based streaming channels are possibly going to get my five to six dollars a month to the point where I'm going to be paying 40, 50, 60 dollars a month and and not even knowing what to watch. So, but that's really outside of the marketing (laughs) purview. It's really wondering and, and actually seeing already some consolidation in that that industry yeah. with um, the, the big guys buying each other up. But, but back to the, the question of how we marketers should be behaving as we play in this world. And it sounded like she has some pretty high hopes for industry organizations for the power of large brands to wield their financial muscle and consumer groups getting involved and maybe solutions being found on both the interoperability front for marketers and also on the consent front for consumers. What do you think? Are, are, are you feeling optimistic about this yourself based on what she said? I am. I know that, you know, she said the onus is on the brands to gain the consent. If we gain the consent from the consumer and we take that on as a, a an initiative, then we can, you know, own that. We meaning the brands can own it as opposed to relinquishing it to um, the two or three large, you know, um, networks that we're seeing, you know, are we going to relinquish it to Facebook, to Google, which, you know, frankly, we've heard called its own walled garden, but a really big one, right? So if we ask the consumer and we give that consent and we grant that consent, then we can um, transparently uh, have control over that. And I think consent management is a really important part of our future um, in order to keep an open web. Otherwise, we're going to devolve back into a lot of closed networks and closed environments. But I'm optimistic. I like what Heather was saying, that there is an opportunity here. It may take one or two big, big players to push this. You know, maybe it's a little David and Goliath. Most of us brands don't feel that we could take on consent management against Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, you know, uh, name it. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Ruth? Well, certainly the walled gardens, even though they have 
competition among each other, they have enormous power right now by controlling their market, demanding payment for access and sort of snubbing their noses at us. Well, we shouldn't let them. And I I like the idea of voting with your wallet. So as brands, we decide where we place our advertising dollars as well. And um, that means as long as we know where our um, consumers and where our networks and our communities uh, reside, there is a really good argument to be made for um, maximizing and leveraging your portals and your private communities while we can before this gets to the next stage. So if you really have a unique uh, private publisher community, if you have, like, you know, Ruth, you came from the publishing you know, industry a while back, uh, where we had interest and intent, and we knew that the consumers who were engaged with us were really special and uniquely interested in what we our, our proposition was. There may be a very unique money-making opportunity um, for you. You may not have thought about it as a walled garden, but guess what? You actually have one without even knowing it. Interesting, and we should be taking advantage of it until the next development comes along and threatens it, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Make hay while the sun shines, as they say. (laughs) What do you think, Ruth? Should we uh, distill this down to our our three little piggies, our three takeaways from this conversation? Absolutely. Why don't you go first? Okay, thank you. My big takeaway was that Solutions seem to be potentially available on both the marketer side for interoperability and on the consumer side for universal consent, if only all the parties can figure out a way to to get there. So that's positive and, and exciting. Agreed. I'd like to take that contrary view that we were, I was just saying, which was, if you have a unique community culture, think about B2B, a very vertically focused niche audience, and you have um, a portal or um, a data environment now, maybe now's the time to push that consent Maybe now's the time for you to develop that consent management and take advantage of that, you know, wall garden environment that may be coming and make some money at that while you can, because down the road, there may be lots and lots of advertisers and marketers who want access to your very targeted community and are willing to pay for it. And maybe the third little pig should actually have been the first one, namely the problem for marketers in all of this is that we have been challenged with moving even closer to the omni-channel view of our audiences that we have been striving for for decades. Let's not give up on that. 
we're still going to strive towards it. I see it. (laughs) (laughs) Always the optimist, Cindy. You bet, Ruth. Well, I think this was a really great conversation with Heather Blank and you. And thanks for uh, spending this time. Terrific. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to WVU Marketing Horizons, hosted by Ruth Stevens and Cindy Greenglass. Please be sure to visit go.wvu.edu slash mctoday to view our upcoming conversations, listen to previous discussions, and subscribe to receive updates.